Good morning, brothers and sisters out there in cyberspace. They say it's a thing, if you believe it. It is July the 17th, 2022, Bo Blimtock, and it's right around 8.15 a.m. Mountain Standard Time. And this is going to be the second in a series of podcasts I'm doing with my friend Seattle Mike on the subject of Breaking Bad, that TV series, you know, Walter White, The Blue Meth, you know the one. And our perspective for this is basically philosophical. Like, what are the interesting subjects that are ethical or even metaphysical that come out of this show? And, you know, he and I both agree there's a lot in it. It's a fairly dense show as far as the story, the drama of human existence. Another thing I've done with this podcast, and I went and corrected the notes for the previous one, is I picked some core themes. The previous one, season one, really everything kind of connected to the subject of grieving. In a lot of ways, season one is about what you do and what you don't do when you're going through those Kubler-Ross stages, so to speak, and you're trying to manage Uh, something that's going to happen. And sometimes it's not death. Sometimes it's losing a job. Sometimes it's a relationship that falls apart. There are many things that we grieve over. And season one of Breaking Bad, I think Mike would probably agree, a lot of those subjects sort of orbited around the topic of grieving. Season two is a bit more complicated, but it is also a season, I think, where we can group a lot of the subjects that we're going to talk about today around the concept of lying. Lying, deception, telling lies, and even what's more to the point, using lies as a way to manipulate and control people. If you think about the last couple years on Planet Bo Blimptock, the last couple years of dealing with the monkey herpes and now the Ukraine war and the race war and all the layers of nonsense the last couple years, the, the one thing that's been striking to me is the level of lying. It's not that we haven't always been lied to by people in authority, those who really are worshiping Satan and not God. We've been lied to for thousands of years. But in the last couple years, it felt like it became exponential. And again, it's hard to know what that means. But one of the outcomes of lying on this scale, in my opinion, and this is also related to today's subject, because lies do have consequences, One of the outcomes of lying on this scale is to create madness, to create psychological tensions that do not need to exist. And so when people say things like, are there lies that don't damage? Are there lies that don't hurt? I would probably say the simple answer is no. It's not to say that we don't tell lies. We're going to talk a little bit about that. And it's also not to say that we share everything. I think Mike would agree There's something cringy about oversharing what goes on in your head, you know? There's a reason why we have that internal voice, that private zone in our skull. So the the core subject today is about deception and lying. And before we get going, hey, Seattle Mike, how you doing? Dan, I'm doing pretty well. I'm uh, enjoying my weekend, which, um, you know, is a weird concept I was thinking about the other day. You know, living for the weekend, right? I I actually had a Saturday yesterday where I felt really comfortable just getting nothing done. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it's nice. Uh, My wife and I went out to uh, Cape Flattery last night, or or, I'm sorry, yesterday, which uh, was 
a bit of a trip to pull off in one day because the the drive, the last 60 miles of that drive are a really curvy road that sometimes has dirt because of washouts and um, it's pretty cool, pretty remote. Uh, it's very northwest tip of the continental United States there in Nia Bay and is under the jurisdiction of the Makai Indian tribe, which is kind of gives it a kind of an interesting, um, uh, you know, experiential aspect to it. Um, but it was good. It was a good drive there and back. We had, we had fun, we brought the dog. And so I'm just here with you today doing, uh, doing this great podcast. Thanks for inviting me along and, um, you know, let, let's, let's get into it. I, I think, um, you know, we talked about some family things before we started the podcast and, um, you know, relationships can be difficult and yeah, there is that tension between, as I had mentioned earlier, between sharing, you know, every last thing that goes on in your mind. Um, some of the things which might not even be based on reality, you know, you might be having an emotion that's not really grounded in, um, the, the person that you would want to project maybe, right? Yeah. The person that you need to be for those loved ones around you. Um, but on the other hand, if you, if you share not, not enough of that, then, you know, you might, you might be aloof and, uh, find yourself emotionally isolated and not be able to provide that sort of, um, grounded, uh, reality for those around you as well. And then of course, if you don't share enough, then maybe you also don't share or start hiding things that you're actually doing and you're up to and you become accustomed to lying. Well, you know, this makes me think of the book of Genesis and, and very early in the book, when you know Adam and Eve are tempted in the garden, because the way that the Lord addresses them, it's as if He's basically saying, "You know what? I I gave you a private space inside your head. Like I I don't always watch you, or maybe I wasn't watching. But when I ask you this question, I, maybe I just gave you a private space inside your head. I I don't know that that's true. It's something I seek understanding with, but." Is there a space inside of our head, a private space, that even the Lord can't see? And I know that sounds impossible, and it probably is, but even if it isn't the case, I think he acts as if it is. Like, I think that part of free will is the possibility that even though God could watch every single thing we do and every single thing we think, maybe he doesn't. I, I know that sounds weird, and, and I know that's a weird place to start, but here's the other part of it, too. Part of getting to know people is about revelation, you know, telling things about yourself. It really is. It's almost as if part of friendship is letting another person know who you are over time. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And it's also the other person wanting to know. It's a, it's a two-way street, right? And, and you have to reciprocate and want to know that other person and that, that that other person has to reciprocate by, by, you know, telling stories about the things that make them, you know, who they are. That that's how you get to know somebody and you get to know somebody even better by shared experiences that you can test against, um, who that person's, who they say they are. If that, if that makes sense, right? It does make sense. Um, so they, when you meet somebody, they kind of formulate, they kind of, uh, 
communicate a hypothesis about who this person is. And then as you have experiences with them and see how they make decisions and how they behave, then you can test their, their actions against that hypothetical person that they project. No, that's right. That's right. And, and you could say that the path of friendship is the path that you just described. It's revelation and it's experience where you reveal things about yourself and then through experience that provides a proof of whether or not it's true. At least a kind of proof. It's not perfect. But, you know, over time you can get a sense, is this person legit? Um, right. But the other side, which is the path of the liar... It, it gets worse and worse. Like you can take a good relationship, potentially, a great relationship, and ruin it by taking the other course. And that is lying and then adding a lie to the lie and then chaining together so many lies that you even lose track of what the truth is any longer. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and the, other, the other way also is by projecting somebody that you're not really right by by putting out this thing and then your actions don't prove that that projection to be true it, it proves out to be just uh you know sort of some some kind of um illusion and you could also argue that dysfunction in a relationship is also about the person being lied to wanting on some level to believe the lie yeah. I mean, a big part of what happened with the COVID, and we're going to tack in that sailing sense towards Walter White here in a second, but a big yeah. part of the COVID thing was about people needing to believe that the government is telling them the truth. Because otherwise, if you start to recognize the possibility that they would lie on the scale, a scale that led to suicides, probably a lot of domestic abuse, people lost their jobs, businesses were destroyed. This was not... You know, when you talk about lies and what lies can do, this was not a victimless lie. And it's still not, and it's ongoing. So when people say things like, well, how, you know, is it all about the liar? It is, but it's also about the person owning up to that. You know, one of the great things about the Bible is it has many books that complement each other, but not necessarily directly. And one of the great books is Proverbs. And I don't know if there's a specific proverb that says this, but I think that there might be that something that says something to this effect. That, you know, if you are being lied to and you believe the liar, at some point you are the fool. You're the person who basically gave in to the lie. Um, it's, not, it's not to say that there aren't victims of lies, but we have to have intellectual self-defense, don't we, Mike? Yeah. Yeah, we do. I mean, yep, I agree. let's say for the sake of argument that we lived in a world where we believed only a third party could figure out who's lying. And actually, this isn't a big trip because this is kind of the world of the statist and the voter. Um, I can't tell if you're lying. You can't tell if I'm lying. So we need to pick up the phone, call a third party and say, come on over and resolve this. And let's even go a state step further and say dishonesty is one of the prime sources of conflict. So all of a sudden you have the mechanism of the state. You have the police, you have the judge, you have the lawyers, you have the laws, and it's all about trying to figure out who's fucking lying. It really is in a lot of ways. That's not the whole picture, but a lot of the conflict that develops between people 
and groups of people is about the belief that the other party is lying about something. Yeah, and the problem with the state, of course, is that um, in the first place, they are subject to um, the distorted uh, uh, incentives of politics. And so when you when you get the state involved in arbiting your disagreements or arbitrating your disagreements, um, it's it's very uh, likely that they're going to have a a favored right uh, party. Um, you know, you voted for Democrat, you voted for Republican, or. Right. Rich, your ideology, poor, yeah, your right? idi- yeah, your ideology is connected to whether or not you're honest. Right. And so, you know, whereas if you if you would agree on a neutral third party, you know, somebody that that is coming in and might have their own biases, but at least isn't connected to, you know, this political monster, then, you know, the if the sheriff comes out to to arbitrate your dispute, sheriff's thinking about his election you know i'm sorry but that's just the way it is yeah whether he whether it's actually explicitly on his mind or not it's going to calculate into that decision in in the aggregate maybe right well and this is this is a really big topic and it's why i'm okay that we haven't quite gotten into the direct stuff about breaking bad yet because this is a good one because my my cousin as you know um who taught philosophy at emory university died this last year and he was a brilliant guy. He taught philosophy of the law. He had a, you know, he got his law degree from Yale, so he's no slouch. But we used to talk about the subject even after, you know, I admitted to him I came out as an anarchist. And, you know, one of the things that people will get into is how do you resolve conflicts without cops? And my response naively is how can you resolve a conflict if you're using cops? Yeah, I mean, you don't really resolve the conflict. What you do is you force an outcome. That's right. There's, I mean, there's a difference. And that's kind of so. So at the end of season one, at the end of season one, our good friend Walter White takes on his ultimate persona. I mean, it's building in season one because again, with Walter White, the grieving process went off the rails, and and we can get into all the reasons why. But his grieving process went to a very dark place. And at the end of season one, we find out who this person's going to be, and that's Heisenberg. He's got his little black hat that he puts on. It's, it's a totem. It's connected to him. It's like part of the uniform of being this other persona. And even though he's already lying throughout season one, you begin to get the sense that he, he thinks of himself as being masterful at it and connecting lies together and building a fiction. Now, of course, throughout season throughout season two, his wife, Skylar, starts to suspect things. Like, you know, the weird phone calls, the extra, the extra mobile phone type stuff. You know, right. and, and Walter has an explanation for every single thing. Oh, well, it was this and it was this. And in some ways, season two for Skylar is a lot like a lot of people with respect to these other types of deceptions it's about her still wanting to believe, you know? She still needed to believe her husband was the the diminutive school teacher teaching chemistry to the future and not somebody else, not some dark figure, you know, this, this Heisenberg. She doesn't even know who that is yet, 
but she needs to believe he is who he says he is. Yeah. Yeah. There is that, that aspect of participating, right? Participating in the con. We talked a little bit about that last, uh, last episode as well. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, um, lying is, is tough. I mean, I think we've all been there. I don't know. There's probably never not a human walking around that hasn't lied. And once you start lying, then you got to remember what you said. And then you have to remember it, it just becomes a sort of, um, spider's web and, you know, maintaining all of those plates and, and keeping them spinning. I, you know, that's a, that's a road, that's a kind of a road to hell, you know, your own personal hell and some kind of weird insanity, maintaining this separate reality in your mind while you're actually negotiating the real reality as well. That's, that, that's kind of, um, a really bad place to to put yourself. Well, it is, it's, it's funny too, because, and I, I don't know if this is episode two, but very early in season two, you have the incident where, you know, Tuco kills some people and this concerns Walter White. And I, and you wonder, does it concern him because of the death or because of the randomness of it? Because it almost seems like you learn about Heisenberg is he doesn't really care about killing. He just doesn't want it to be random. You know, he wants there to be some logical reason for it. You know, that gets back to that whole Max Stirner thing the end justifies the means kind of ethics, you know. As long as something happens as a result that's positive, it's okay. But the way Tuco would kill people, it seemed indiscriminate and crazy, and he didn't like that. Yeah, he was, he was crazy. He beats that guy for speaking on his behalf, and then <laughs> his, his cousin or whoever comes out to retrieve him from under the pile of cars, and he... he gets his arm severed in the process and uh, he dies and then of course now the bodies are discovered and at first uh, Walt and Jesse believe that um, Tuco killed the second guy right Yeah. but then they find out later of course that um, it, it was just a kind of uh, you know comedy of errors type of thing and um so, uh, Tuco ends up, what, basically kidnapping Jesse and then luring Walt into the car and takes him out to, uh, what's his name's place? We, we meet, uh, what's his name for T- the first time? Yeah, Tuco's uncle, you know. I, Tio, I, yes. Tio Salamanca, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, with the bell. The little bell. <laughs> and you know, the funny thing is, so here's Tuco. He knows the cops are on to him, and his thing is, well, I gotta take the magical Heisenberg and his lab assistant with me to Mexico, and that's his escape plan. You know, right. get, go to Mexico, go to the jungle, make some more blue meth with these people he just found. Um, but yeah, they go out to that cabin in the desert, and basically, it's the you know the the old uncle who had a stroke who figures out the bullshit. I mean, because he, he's sitting there. He's not, he's almost ignored like he's a camera that's running. You know what I mean? Like, and, and <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, that's a good analogy. You know, he, he's almost like the fourth wall in, in the context of that story. He's just a camera, but he's the camera that starts talking in his own special way with the bell, you know? And, right. 
And and the thing is, Tuco is all he seems like he's always on crystal meth. He's always in a really paranoid sort of amphetamine kind of stimulate stimulus psychosis, it seems like. Yeah. So so he has a hard time having rational conversations with anybody. And I'm not sure you can on crystal meth. It's it's one of those things where I've never done it, but I'm not sure that a rational conversation is a result. But on the other hand, okay, you know. But it was his old uncle that figured out that crap. And it's funny. It's interesting. It it makes you wonder though too, because there there's gotta be almost no trust in the black market. And Mike, I think you pointed this out before, but the black market isn't as much a manifestation of free enterprise as it is a symptom of a state. You know, we wouldn't need a black market if there wasn't a government that was there to throw you in jail for buying and selling things you're not supposed to. Right. And, yep. and, and in many ways, the black market is the lie that underlies statism. You know, at all times, the degree to which the state wants to control your life is the degree to which the black market will grow. Right. It's like um, trying to plant a palm tree in Fairbanks, Alaska, and then and then pointing to the palm tree and saying, that's a really shitty tree. Yeah. Like, I don't know if that's a if that's an apt analogy. But that that's kind of what the black market is. It's this thing that's try. It's this bit of humanity that's trying to grow up, you know, to sprout and thrive amidst uh, the, the, you know, a, a, an environment that it can't, it can't really flourish in its natural way. It needs artificial, um, you know, sustenance, right? It needs to be in a greenhouse uh, with, uh, you know, longer days of sunlight, <laughs> than Fairbanks can provide, right? Pretty much. So let's talk about growing things and switch to Jesse Pinkman and his family relationships in season two. Um, You know, there's a bunch of lies in that particular story too. It's one of those things where you get the sense that communication was not a priority or at least honest communication. Yeah. Yeah, and I... I think I go back to the idea that I, th- I really think his parents probably um, maybe infantilized him when, when he was growing up and probably, you know, were overweening and um, didn't give him room to uh, develop into, you know, a, a, a full, fully functioning person. And probably the same thing will happen to his his little brother, but on the other side of it, right? right. Too much responsibility, too much expectation, um, and and so now they're trying to recover from that by you know by trying to create logical consequences on a fully uh, you know a, a fully uh, somebody who's an autonomous person who who can make his own decisions regardless of whatever they say. And so they use this house as the, as the means of, of trying to create some incentives for him to get his life together. Yeah. And it's interesting that the incident with the, his brother and the joint, and again, getting back to the subject of lying, it's like, you know, sometimes a lie 
is you just telling a lie. And sometimes there's this weaker lie where you're you're just too afraid to tell the truth. Like it's a lot like a lot of people in Seattle I knew during the COVID, they'd put on the coffee filter because they wanted to go to the store, but then they would take it off. So they knew it was bullshit. And they had no problem going to the restaurant and having the coffee filter on their face. And then something magical happens when you sit down, you can take the coffee filter off. They had no problem doing that and they knew it was bullshit. But they didn't have the courage to say no. You know, and, and the thing about Jesse's little brother is that you get the sense that he knows it's bullshit that his brother is taking the blame. And I, and I don't even know if he would have technically said anything, but it was always just assumed, well, Jesse's the drug addict, so the joint must be Jesse's. Right. And, and Jesse let them believe that. You know, they, they actually didn't ask him. They just assumed it. And that's an, that's an interesting, um, maybe, maybe an interesting ethical point. So if somebody comes to the conclu- a conclusion about you that's wrong, do you have the obligation to correct them? You know, I would switch to the bigger question. Are there times when you should tell the truth? No matter, period. Like it's, it's unequivocal you should tell the truth. Even if you think you're violating some secrecy oath to somebody, you should tell the truth. And my answer is yes. In this particular case, um, it, it, you know, it, it seems like Jesse got burnt out off of his family and he simply gave in to just saying okay. You know? I think that if he would have said no, this is uh, my brother's, they wouldn't have believed him anyway. And I think that's possible too. I mean, and I don't really want to make this personal in any kind of egoistic sense, but, you know, I've been trying to to do well, to succeed with podcasting for many, many years. And potentially one of the things I get wrong is I don't really care about reading my audience. I I don't give a shit. It's your your mind and your thoughts are your business. If you're listening to my podcast, I'm trying to be honest about how I see the world, and that doesn't mean I'm right. And the problem is, is I don't see the world in very comfortable ways. So during the great COVID, I was not comfortable just reinforcing people and saying, oh, yeah, yeah, maybe it's kind of true. And I got to say, I was really disappointed by all the so-called people on the alternative journalist world who gave in to versions of, well, the COVID is kind of real. Or maybe we kind of overreacted. And all of that seemed like the thing Jesse did, just make making things smooth, trying to avoid conflict, you know, not wanting people to get upset. I mean, at some point you get tired of it, right? You get tired of people just being angry. And it could be that this is just fundamental, dude. I mean, there's a reason why we have myths. Myths often, a myth, a mythology, often represents an eternal truth. And the myth of Cassandra is a pretty powerful myth because it represents a truth. When it comes to the truths we often feel passionate to tell, we find out that many people are passionate to not want to believe. You know, yeah. the, the most important truths are often not very convenient, Mike. You know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, because, because if you've erected a paradigm and you live your life around that paradigm and it's it's based on um, not only material fallacies but also logical fallacies, it's really difficult to shed that as you know and 
as I know as well, you know, I, I mean, it took me, I was aware, you know, I was a libertarian for a long, long time, you know, since the early nineties, even though I early on looked at the libertarian party as kind of a waste of time because, you know, again, you can't use Satan to cast out Satan. No, you can't. It doesn't make any sense at all to seize power to break the power. I mean, that that's not going to happen, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> the system will consume you before you you get it broken up. That's well, just the, that's yeah. the way it's going to be. Yeah. And and it took me it took some pretty hard life experiences and being confronted with the absolute truth of who these people were for me to say, okay, I'm an anarchist. That this this whole thing is just garbage. So one of the things that pops up after the incident with Tuco, where you know they basically set him up with the cops for a shootout, and talk about deception and lies and falsehoods. You know, Hank becomes a hero by just sort of haphazardly falling into a situation at that cabin. He just sh- shows up. Yeah. He shows up expecting to find Jesse because he figures out. So they're they're looking for Hank. Hank's disappeared, and they don't know where he's gone. So you know, there's this manhunt uh, by the family. You know, they're putting signs up around, and um, they got a. Didn't they start a website? I think, and um, there's uh, so so Hank is involved, and he's using the the tools of the state. And some some pretty good investigative skills that he actually has, and some good intuition. And he thinks back, okay, what what's the thing? The one thing that I I can think of it's this Pinkman character that he was associated with because he somehow finds out that he had bought bought some marijuana from him or something. This was the story, right? Yeah, that's one of the lies. Yeah. So. Um, Hank finally figures out, oh, he's got this car, and what does the car probably have? A low jack, and that's how he uses, that's how he finally finds Jesse's car. And he doesn't find Pinkman, because Walt and Jesse are in the process of escaping. And um, he finds instead uh, Tuco, <laughs> armed with a, a, a machine gun. That's right. And has a shootout with him. And, and uh, go ahead. And you know, uh, at least according to the story, you know he kind of fumbles around a little bit, and then finally gets an opportunity to get a steady, calm, propped up shot. And when he pop, when Tuco pops up from reloading his gun, he pops him right in the forehead. And um, you know that that was that. And then Walt and Jesse run off into the desert. Yeah, and you could argue that at this point in season two, even though Walter White has a history of all these lies he's connecting together, at this point in season two, he has to construct one of his biggest lies. And that is, what was he doing? Where was he? Where was Walter White? He doesn't want to tell the truth. He can't tell the truth. So where was he? And so he puts together this whole, well, I had amnesia... And then, and then it w- wasn't really amnesia because he explained to the counselor that it, 
with something else, but the counselor can't tell the truth, the psychologist or whoever. But yeah, he said he had amnesia and they called it a fugue state. And they were very right. worried about it because, you know, what if he pops into a fugue state and does something really bad? And, you know, these are concerns of healthcare workers, right. you know. It, right. <laughs> I mean, you know, the only thing I can say about a fugue state is it kind of reminds me of a blackout. Like, I've never really had a blackout before. Um, maybe once when I was drinking and when I was in the army, I drank so much, I was behaving, but I had no memory of it, and it just happened. But it must be like being in a blackout, right? You're you're living a life, you're doing stuff, but then once it's over, you forget about it. It's. I think it's a. It's interesting. The more I think about that thing, it's a it's a good literary device because if you think about what's going on there. Walt has to kind of split his personality and live these two lives. And he has to um, have sort of a kind of amnesia when he's doing one versus when he's doing the other. Well, it, it's you could, you could argue it's part of the whole story arc. I mean, to some extent in the final season, he wants to become conscious again which means he wants to be a normal Walter White with all these millions of dollars that came from somewhere, but he doesn't remember where. I mean, in some ways, that's really the ultimate goal, is, this, is just to pretend that he, he being Heisenberg, this high-level meth, meth cook, was just a hallucination. It never really happened. Yeah, like... Um, like it was a, a fantasy that he only that he can somehow pull all of the great parts of that fantasy into his real life and then you know the rest of it was just a dream and and it, he didn't kill people along the way he didn't destroy lives you know he didn't uh <laughs> have to do some of the things that he did um and he can just uh you know not have to face the consequences of it. Well, and, and you, that's you, a very, yeah, that's a very human tendency. I mean, you know, I think most of us have, have done things we're not, not proud of. And if you try to escape those things, they're still going to come back to you, you know, one way or the other. And if you want to leave that life behind, you have to face it completely. I think. No, I think you're right. It's kind of, you know, you allude to this, by discussing the fugue state in the context of people who might be sociopaths and narcissists and also talking about a lot of people in our society who are simply helpless. And think about 9-11 and the first couple weeks after 9-11. It, it almost seems like most of America's thinking class was in a fugue state. Like, they didn't really understand what was happening. They kind of suspected the truth. They never really wanted to go there. And so... They were there for two weeks. And you could argue, well, it really was 20 years. Like, at least in terms of Afghanistan, it was 20 years of just needing to pretend it wasn't happening. Some people came up with rationalizations. A lot of people just went to pretend. And they went to a place inside their head. And, and they would hope and pray, like, when it's over, we can all say, well, it was over. I got to be honest with you, the COVID is even worse because I run into people now who want to pretend the COVID never happened. Like, they'll just say, oh, yeah, I remember that, but it's no longer a thing. And it's like, well, it was a thing to the people that were destroyed. 
you know, the people whose lives were ruined. It was a thing for them. But I run into people now who want to just pretend it just didn't happen. Like they want to switch subjects. The Ukraine situation looks like a desperate attempt to change topics. You know, it does. And and speaking of that, Dan, you know, I, I drove through Port Angeles and Port Angeles in the last 20 years has grown quite a bit in terms of, you know, like just the size of the town. But you know what's thriving in Port Angeles? What? Walmart. Yeah. <laughs> Home Depot, Lowe's, all these gigantic megacorps in their big boxes. And you know what's not thriving? The old downtown area that looks like, uh, you know, that's starting to look like Beirut, which is the actually cool, organic part of Port Townsend. And empty storefronts, run down, dilapidated. The ones that are open look run down and dilapidated. Lots of places that are empty and for lease. It's like, okay, so mom and pop and the small family business were obviously completely destroyed during COVID, but somehow these megacorps survived making no money. Well, I mean, that's why, honestly, dude, that's why I call it neo-Stalinism because it's not really a free market. It looks like one from a, it's like Potemkin free enterprise on the outside. It masquerades as free enterprise. But if you simply open up the door and look behind, you'll find people making decisions that no one has the authority, capability, or wisdom to make. Yeah. And, and this is what you end up with. I mean, it was always going to be Walmart, Mike, for them. <laughs> That's true. That's true. You know, I mean, I remember reading about this case where, and I forget where it was, and it might have been 10 or 15 years ago, but there was this case, and I think it was on the East Coast, where people lived on property, and the local government with Walmart used eminent domain to kick them off of the property they owned, they paid for, so they could put in a Walmart. Yeah, they, they, condemned, the, they condemned the property. Yeah, and you know, to me, when people say things like, well, I'm a voter, and I believe in democracy, blah, 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 it, it, it's another type of fugue state, too, when you think about it, the whole voting booth. It, it's, it's one of those things that points to the, well, to me, the weakness of the Milgram experiment. Because it isn't the reality of people like turning a knob and hearing people screams because of electrocution. It's more like people just go to pretend, pretend land. They, they go into the voting booth, they pick, pick a party, pick a topic, and then they don't want to think about what has to happen in order to make that happen, even though I believe they all know. Just like Walter White knows he's a criminal, okay, that he can pretend to be Heisenberg for a couple hours a day, but that's still who he is. But, you know, the pretend protects you too, in a way. I mean, when Walter White starts to come to grips with the truth of what he's done, which is, you know, a couple seasons ahead, you can tell that that's, you know, in a physical sense, his cancer is accelerating, but you can tell that's him recognizing that all of what he did was really just destructive. You know, that he could do damage control, he could try to save his soul, but at the end of the day, he could have made different choices. And you get the sense towards the end he understands that. Like, maybe he's not an unredeemable sociopath, but he does represent what I would argue is the predominant ethos of Americans, you know, who basically don't believe in God, send their kids to public schools and vote. And, and he does have that. And the problem is that ethos is very disconnected. 
It's very disconnected. It leads easily to sociopathy. If you don't need to or want to take control of your ethical life and you think it's better to outsource your ethical choices to somebody else, then yeah, it seems like a lot of bad things can happen, Mike, you know, when you outsource right and wrong. Yeah, and you disconnect yourself from it and and pretend that it's just the way the world is and it's some sort of inevitable force. Um, it, it is really weird to have, especially to have conversations with, with right-wing people and and to, to, to try to pin them down on what you're doing is advocating the use of force for your preferences. Very few will allow, will allow you to go there. They'll end the conversation first. Whereas if you have a conversation with an honest leftist, they'll be like, yes, I absolutely believe that I... I have better ideas about the way the world should be, that I'm more of a moral person, and that absolutely when I go into the voting booth, um, I'm telling you how to live, and I'm okay using the cops to do so because I want the world to look like that. Yeah, so I, I, at, I, least the, at least many leftists will, will go there with you, and, you know, I'll, I'll give them that, <laughs> right? At least they're honest about their intentions. I mean... In a way, I, I kind of agree with you and kind of don't because I think okay. the left the leftists have their own self deceptions, as you and I well know. Oh, but sure. but on this sure. point, it's it's sort of like they're complementary. It, it's like every lie for a Republican is a truth for a Democrat, and every truth for a Democrat is a lie for a Republican. It's yeah. it, they, they yeah. fit together like yin and yang. I agree with yeah. you when it comes to the use of force. The Democrats and li liberals and leftists seem more consistent. But then they got their own crap that doesn't make a lot of sense. So it's sort of like, you know, six of one, half a dozen of the other. You yeah. Know, it's, it's... I, but I guess maybe because I come from the, come from the right wing, uh, you know, perspective, I guess it's more distasteful to me because if you, if you truly, if you proclaim freedom and you want liberty and you think and you criticize the the, the government on a lot of fronts, then what, how, how do you use that very thing then to solve your problem? It doesn't make any sense. Well, it's, and it's, it's such an obvious, simple fallacy. It know? is. It is. It's kind of like the reason why I'm critical of the Milgram experiment is the same reason why I think it's interesting because it brings up a discussion of how control works. And I would argue control, you know, in many ways, the Milgram experiment is a brutal honesty. Like the person's sitting there and they're not being told the complete truth, but they definitely know they're electrocuting somebody. They definitely are being told to turn the knob up and they can hear the screams. But yeah. imagine there's something called the ideal Milgram machine. And here's how the ideal Milgram machine works. And for those out there, I'll leave it up to you to research the Milgram experiment. It's often quoted so often that I feel like many of you already know what it is. And I have a couple podcasts that deal with it. But imagine there's a, a system by which you can totally disconnect a person from an action and its ethical consequences. And if you ask me, government throughout history has been the ideal Milgram machine. 
You know, it, yeah, sometimes you vote for the king, sometimes the king is selected by the shaman, but at the end of the day, whoever is the totem of power, they take on all the sins and the blood and they do all the lying. So if there's a war someplace, well, it's a war for righteousness. And if there are people who are starving, well, they're starving because they're bad. And, and the thing is, people are then put into situations like a city where you can isolate the ugliness from what's beautiful. So you can have the bad part of town. And the bad part of town has always been there, Mike. Always. There's always been the part of the city, the town, that nobody wants to visit or talk about. You know, unless they're going to go do something in the black market, right? Right. But, but ultimately, it's an ideal Milgram machine because it actually blocks the things that would trigger conscience probably just on a biological level. Like just on a biological level, the things that would trigger people to think about, well, maybe this isn't right, it blocks them. It, it hides them. You know, and now you get to the year 2022 and you and I don't know anybody that doesn't have a magical glowing rectangle. And most of the people I know that have them stare at them all day. And that is probably the penultimate Milgram machine because it, it completely substitutes another reality. You know, it's like that game Pokemon Go, you know, a number of years ago and the joke about people following it onto restricted areas and whatnot. But in some ways, that is the reality we're in right now, is that they don't yeah. really want people to even have a sense of right and wrong. And the only way you can make this Milgram machine work, it's fuel, it's energy, comes from lies. And lies that people tell and lies that people need to believe. You know, it's like the 4th of July. Um, at this point in American history, the 4th of July seems like a philosophical insult to anybody that believes in freedom. But it is a celebration we have to do, right? And what are we celebrating now in the year 2022? And I know it just passed a few weeks ago, but what were we celebrating on July the 4th this year? Uh, <laughs> according to uh, some people I listen to talk about it at work, um, gunpowder is the smell of freedom. Which sounds a lot like a euphemism, doesn't I, it? And I just said, for whom? Yeah. And one guy was like, uh, wow, that's a good question. Like, yeah, well, if, the, if you're on the receiving end of that gunpowder and you're just sitting at home doing nothing and you, you were never involved in the conflict, is that freedom for you? If, you, if, if there's a bridge to the hospital that you need to take your kid to and some American bomb blew it up, is that freedom? Oh, it's your fault that you that, that, your, that your government fell afoul of the United States? Oh, okay. And he was like dumbfounded. But, it's, but the thing you run into is why I call an ideal Milgram machine, dude. Yeah, because, that's right. Because you're dealing with people. They don't have to hear the screams. They don't have their finger on the fucking knob. And frankly, I don't think their votes ever get counted. So they go into a box ceremonially every couple years and they push some buttons. And that is the only thing they have to do. And that's probably just ritual at this point. And yeah. they can go back to their glowing rectangle and they can go back to talking on Twitter and Facebook and they can talk about crap and BS and lies. And they never have to ever really sense that something that they're involved in is causing pain someplace else. They don't have to experience it. 
you know. And it's why I'm very critical of the Milgram experiment because it doesn't really represent how the thing works. Even during World War II, it didn't really represent what was going on. The people like Eichmann, I mean, supposedly Milgram developed his experiment based upon Eichmann and his trial in Jerusalem. But the reality is somebody like Eichmann was a fucking paper pusher, Mike. If he, right. if he, he didn't have to ever hear a scream, if he didn't want to, he might have killed a Jewish person, but he never had to. All he had to do was make sure the logistics functioned. That's right. it. And how is that different than today? I mean, how is Eichmann different from the Pizza Hut delivery guy that delivers pizzas to the facility in Nevada where the people drive the, fly the drones that murder a family? I mean, basically, we're making sure they get fed, you know, yeah. so they can go kill another family. But how is that different? And I would say the only difference is that Eichmann had some understanding of what was going on. Even if he didn't see the killing, he knew it was happening. Whereas the pizza guy, he doesn't know. Ignorance is bliss, dude. He doesn't know who he's delivering pizza to. He has no fucking clue. He probably does. He might. He might. But the point is, that requires an effort. And, and this yeah. is where we get into that terrible dynamic of people wanting to be lied to. It's like during World War II when Hitler would tell people, oh, where are the Jews going? Well, they're going to Madagascar. You know, we're, <laughs> we're, 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 what are we doing? We're moving them. We're, we're, oh, redistributing them. There's a better word for, for their, this. For their own safety. Yeah. 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 You know, but, but ultimately these were just euphemisms too. I, I don't know, dude. It's, it's why when you think about season two of Breaking Bad, it's why the power and the danger and the poison of deception just jumps out because so many people, during season two, Hank, Hank's wife, Skyler, um, even even their kids, everybody's participating in some type of deception at some point. And I think that's why Walter White thrives, because he understands a simple truth. That it's not just people want to believe lies, but that probably a lot of the people he lived around lied all the time. You know, and, but, have, to, and have to believe in it. Yeah, it's like Skyler, it's like you pointed out, Skyler feeding him that, you know, vegetarian, vegan bacon in one of the first episodes of the series, and then she smokes cigarettes. Right, right, yep. And, and you yeah, know, it's... yeah, yeah. And that's because she was having a hard time coping with the, the reality falling apart around her. You know, she she has to start give, shedding some of that paradigm herself, and we, and we see that metamorphosis portrayed really well by her, actually. I think. Well, wow. and, and and you know, where does she end up? She ends up in the bad part of town in the end, in a, in a low rent in a low rent area. The reality is, it's like people like Skyler remind me of people in Seattle. You know, they house flip and they vote Democrat, and they pretend their shit doesn't stink, and in reality. Their shit does stink. It's just that they have a really good Milgram machine for hiding it, for hiding the stink. But over time, things do crack, and you start to see through it. And I kind of think a lot of people in Seattle are going to have a rude awakening pretty soon when it comes to house flipping and, and the pyramid schemes that surround it. Um, but whatever, yeah. hap whatever ends up happening, what happened to Skyler was she needed to believe that good people become rich and bad people become poor. 
for example, and I, I hate to oversimplify, but that's kind of what a lot of people I know believe. Oh yeah, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's that's true, and it's probably that's probably been true for a long time. Well, yeah, and and I think a, yeah, a, it's a, a lot like beauty. It's a lot like beauty, dude. People I mean, will associate an ethical or judgmental frame to a physical reality. Like this person is beautiful. Ergo, they must be a good person, you know? And and there have been sociopaths and psychopaths and narcissistic freaks throughout history who've taken advantage of that. Well, I'm beautiful. Ergo, I must be a good person. It's like Ted Bundy. You know, he was a good-looking guy. And he looked like a typical paradigm, good-looking, middle-class white guy. So according to that model of the world, he couldn't possibly be a stark, raving, mad killer. Right. Yeah. It, you know yeah, that, that. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. It, you know we we have a that image of God in us. I think puts uh, a a sense of aesthetics, and that aesthetics is easy to. It's easy for us to um, mistake what we find aesthetically pleasing for the sublime. And because sin has disconnected us in, in some way and distorted that understanding of the sublime, we, we tend to substitute aesthetics and, and sublime sublimity. And there is a connection there, but I don't think that we, I don't think that it is what we think it is, if that makes sense. No, it does. So, uh, somebody who's really, really attractive and then also <clears throat> has attractive person outward personality excuse me <laughs> traits um, can leverage that if they understand the connection between that we draw between the sublime and the aesthetically pleasing can really leverage that for their own power. It well, is a form of power. It is, and I would apply that to intelligence as well. I mean, people will assume that because somebody sounds smart, they must be telling them the truth. You know, oh, this person's got four degrees and they sound educated, ergo, if they're telling me there's this dangerous, you know, virus that's destroying the world and crawling up through pipes and people's buttholes, it must be true. You know, uh, I got to wear three coffee filters, Mike. I got to wear three or four coffee filters. Why? Because somebody that sounds smart and I even had one person tell me that I know who thought that Anthony Fauci was attractive. So you put the, the combination of, well, here's this attractive old man telling me, you know, smart things because he's a doctor. Ergo, I'm going to wear four coffee filters. Right. You know, it, it's it's crazy, but beautiful people, people that are portrayed as smart or, or, or just have money, these physical characteristics will substitute for a measure, a rational measure of, can I trust this person? Because, and again, this gets back to a, a fundamental fallacy that I think you pointed out, the fallacy that this world we live in, that is not Eden, and it is not the kingdom, this world we live in, that somehow it's fair. It's not. It's, it's all through the Bible. If you, there are many things you can say about the Bible, but one common message is that this world we are in is not fair in the sense that people want it to be fair. Bad things happen to good people, and there, 
if you want to understand why, you have to ask deep questions. But it's not a fair world. But the problem is people will say, well, it must be fair. And ergo, the rich person, the beautiful person, the smart person, they must be telling me the truth. Yeah. And one of the things that, that Jesus, the life of Jesus introduced into that is that we tend to think that there's this um, bizarre, bizarro reality out there that we have to, to kind of beat back um, and, and we have to manipulate our surroundings in order to, you know, um, make the place livable. And really, I think what Jesus showed and why he looks like the bizarro guy, <laughs> right, and asks us to do things and tells us is because what he's telling us is, is a disruption of that. It's, hey, you know, you guys are creating the bizarre world. Actually, everything is here you need already. God has provided it all, and all you need to do is repent from your sin and start treating your fellow man the way you want to be treated and really, really take and own the consequences of your own actions. Stop copying your neighbor to, to be in rivalry with him. And you, you actually can, if you cooperate on an equal basis with, with true, genuine respect and love and mercy and compassion, you can turn this world into as close to Eden as it can possibly be. But you have to live it right. You, you, know, do. you have to actually do the things. You have to turn away from your sin. You have to be in communion with God, and you have to own your own behavior. Which, I think that's kind of what, life, what the life of Christ demonstrates to us. Which I think also means that instead of being focused on trying to control the world and, and clean up the whole world of all the things you think personally might be wrong— Focus on cleaning up your soul, your mind. Focus on that, and the world yeah. can become better. Like It's like what you said. This is not going to be Eden ever, not the, not the dispensation we're in. But this doesn't have to be hell either. Like It's not as simple as Eden or hell. It could be a lot better than what it is. The problem is, is that you have to live differently. And, and you also have to give up on a lot of lies, dude. In order to get to a place where human beings can live on planet earth without it becoming a perpetual bloodbath we have to give up on a lot of things that we think are true yeah i think if we if we had been living according to the gospel since jesus life since his death we we probably would be inhabiting other planets by now that i'm and you know some of your listeners might think that sounds crazy but you know the the sort of hyperstatism or I don't maybe that's not the right word but sort of ultra statism that we keep trying to force on the world um, is super costly you know it it, it 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 enables people to have monopoly power that that is just simply not good for for any people to any person or people to have in any way you know and it really uh, disrupts the ability to have um, technological achievement and to have the sort of 
growth and grow into our potential. Um, you know, you want to eliminate cancer, stop funding, to stop government funding <laughs> of it, right? Yeah. If you, I mean, what happens when you cure cancer and your job depends on researching the cure for cancer? Then now you're out of a job. I mean, it's it's kind of that simple, and I'm maybe I'm not making a lot of sense, but I'm trying to draw some connections between trying to manipulate your surroundings through force and try and and trying to cooperate to to have to make solutions that are actually come from the community instead of from the top down. Well, you know, there's this quote from Napoleon that I've quoted before, and it might be apocryphal. But Napoleon might have said this once, that the only thing you can't do with bayonets is sit on them. And if you want to control the world, then you have to commit to it. And in committing to it, you're committing to your own self-destruction because you can't do it. But everything you do just gets worse and worse. You know, back in 2018, 2019, I used this analogy of the crocodile to talk about government. And how at first it's this little crocodile, it's kind of cute, it, you know, it only wants to eat one or two babies a year, and, and they're, they're far away. The babies are far away that are being eaten, the villages that are being burnt are not your, it's not your village being burnt. So you could ignore the pillars of smoke in the distance. And in some ways that's the way this, you know, the constitutional United States began, is that at first, if you were one of those good people on one side of the Milgram machine, you had a kind of free existence in the 19th century. But if you were on the other side of that barrier, you might have been Native Americans who were chased out of their homelands. You might have been the Mexican people who were dealt with in a kind of a, a double-handed way. You might have been American slaves. And all of that was hidden from a lot of people. Maybe not in the South, but definitely in, you know, amongst the good Protestants of the Northeast, a lot of the worst things that were happening and the Constitution allowed to have happen, they could just pretend that it was easy, okay? But the problem is, if you want that control, it ratchets up. It gets worse and worse and worse. And eventually, that monster that didn't attack your family, didn't, you know, eat your babies, eventually that monster turns its eyes on you. I mean, that's what happened. That's the story of the constitutional government of this country. At first, it focused on the weakest people that could be easily ignored. And then, when it got strong enough, it turned on everybody else. Yeah. Yeah, first it created a domestic empire. And the weird thing is that most people just don't understand what the Constitution actually does. And what it did for those who drafted it and their crony friends was it allowed required payment of uh, revolutionary-era debt and currency at par. So... Speculators had gone in and bought up all of that currency and debt at, you know, fractions of a penny on the on the the so-called dollar par, right? And then they wanted they wanted that speculation to pay off, and so they used the Constitution to do that. And the other thing, of course, there was land speculation, where the where the colonies had drawn, you know, their borders, you know, their north and south borders, you know, west eternally, and had sold rights to uh, occupy that land to speculators and those speculators wanted to make good on that they wanted to be able to sell those rights back off and the only way they could do that 
was by having that written into a constitution where there was a federal government enabled to enforce that. And so right from the beginning, this was just a land and, cur- uh, land and currency scam. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so it's not surprising that we're still dealing with the effects of that today. Well, and, and the reality is it can only ratchet up. This is part of the thing you point out about the libertarians is that there's this kind of falsehood baked into the libertarian party that you can ratchet down. You can't. It can only ratchet up until it explodes. That's it. You know, the, the secret destiny of all forms of government is failure. It is. It always has been. It might yeah. take a while, you know, because believe me, if a government can consume enough bodies, it will stay alive long enough for a while, whatever. But eventually you run out of people to consume. Um, eventually yeah. you run out of countries to destroy. Eventually you make people so poor, they just don't have anything you can steal. Right. Yeah, it's like a zip tie. Yeah. <laughs> Right. You put it around your finger and you're not going to be able to get it off your finger, uh, you know, short of cutting it off. Pretty much. And in some ways, it's like, the, the you know, taking a snakehead fish and plopping it into some pond in the Cascade Mountains. It's filled with trout and other things. Whatever you may think, that snakehead's going to eat all the fish and then probably it's going to die because it's going to run, yeah. out, of, run out of food. Yep. You know, Um it is it is inevitable for this to happen. And it's one of those sort of self-deceptions that keeps it going. The belief, well, the next election, Mike, if we just get the right people in office, everything will get fixed. Right. You know? It's an amazing, it's an amazing lie. And it is really so blatantly, obviously, demonstrably false. <laughs> I, yeah. Hey, we're yep. we're just over an hour. Do you have more time? Yeah, we can get through. I think this segues nice into the next um, point, uh, and we can kind of move through some of these quickly. I think. Well, which one did you? Because I was going to mention the hospital painting. Um, okay. If that's yeah, okay. Go for it. Well, yeah. okay. So you bring up that painting, and that painting shows up in more than one season, more than one episode. Yeah of the the dude in the painting like rowing out to the sailing ship and the family waving goodbye and yeah. you know you you just you compare that to terminal illness and, I, and and emotional distance and i agree but it also isn't that also kind of a pseudo expression of what a fugue state is like it's almost like part of your mind is going on a part of your mind is back with the family and you're going to do cookouts and everything's okay. And then the other part of your mind is, is sailing out to some ship and who the hell knows what this guy's going to do. Like we don't really know what the dude in the rowboat is going to do. He could be sailing out to a pirate ship, you know, he could be sailing out to a slaver and moving slaves you know that that era of history he could be going out to a ship that's going to sail to africa you know pick up some slaves trade it for some rum or, or whatever that really crooked you know thing was but the point is you don't really know what he's going to go do no and and you know that's also your stranded skier analogy comes into into place there yeah 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 it's uh, that's a, that's kind of a cool painting it's i mean it's like um you know it's a cheap hospital painting right but it's it's interesting that the the producers of the show chose that to, to kind of keep focusing on and it's it's of course walt that's looking at it and 
and he he looks at the family and then you know then the camera kind of pans over to the sh- the ship or the 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 boat the rowboat right yeah and it and it is different and he's struggling with that in the season he's trying to figure out okay how can i how can i bridge the gap between these two worlds how can i somehow bring them together in a way that benefits me and them and insulates me and them from the consequences as well. It's kind of a, a weird um, mediation that he's trying to, to happen there. So you wanted to, to address a, a point, and I just want to pass it off to you to pick the next topic in this. Oh, uh, I think we were, we were talking about... Um, you know, uh, how, how we negotiate our way through the world by using an intermediary. Uh, so after uh, Hank has this shootout, we start to see, you know, he gets celebrated for it, and then he goes into the elevator, and, um, uh, the you know, after the DEA, he's going home, or I don't remember what the circumstances are, but he has a panic attack yeah. <laughs> in the elevator. And we start to see him kind of falling apart a little bit. Well, you know, and part and part of it is. Can I interrupt you for a second? Yeah, yeah because part sure. of it is. Okay, so after the big gun battle, he gets a kind of promotion to go to El Paso. That's and, right. And El Paso, you could argue it was like him going south, him going on a trip, but him getting closer to the truth. Like, if if anything, El Paso was way closer to the truth as far as what the DEA was doing and what reality was than anything he'd experienced. And one form of this truth was this horrible situation where this, you know, this drug kingpin's head, you know, the, the philosophical, the tortoise, is on a turtle, you know, his decapitated head, and the turtle's rigged to explode, and he sees his fellow agents just getting torn up by an explosion. And so you're yeah. right, after that, he basically starts falling apart, you know? He, he sees the truth, he actually had an experience of the reality, and, and he does start losing it. Well, he starts falling apart before that, I think, right? Uh, a, a little bit, but it really yeah. was shocking and jarring for him. Like, it was one of those yeah. things where you could see what was going to eventually happen. Yeah. Like, it, you know, where he was headed. Yeah, and, and it really kind of gives lie to the the persona that he, and you know, um, projects. Again, we're, we're, I'll bring this sort of analogy where we, we project this truth about ourselves out to the world and that's that's a really good and i think the authors use this specifically because they don't always portray the government actors in a good way right no like i mean the first season hank is you know like nauseating almost almost uh you know Universally, although he does have his his, his little moments here and there, um, and and Marie is a shoplifter, a compulsive uh, thief, and you know maybe it's my bias coming in here, but you know you put those two together and they're kind of a symbol of the government. Yeah, um, they're a symbol of the state, and uh, that, that's a really you know and and the the people who oppose it are kind of portrayed as maybe not heroes but as um people trying to make their way 
and trying to survive in that in that milieu, you know. Well, think about the sort of pi- the pirates, right? Yeah. Think about Marie for a second. If she wasn't the good white wife of a DEA agent, but instead she was just a poor person, irrespective of color, if she was just a poor person in some bad part of town and she was caught stealing shit, what would have happened to her? She'd be in an orange suit out picking up trash on the side of the road. That's right. She'd be in prison. And the, and the thing is, him covering for her actually pushed her further down the road. Like, instead of her learning the lesson and saying, oh, I shouldn't steal shit, she just ratcheted up, you know? Yeah. To, you know, and it's, 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 it is interesting. It's like people say, well, she was responding to Hank, you know, having all of his issues. But she was already doing that before Hank had his issues. Like, you know, that tiara, that tiara I think, in season one? You remember that? Yep. Yeah. She was... Yeah. She was already heading down that road, you know? Oh, yeah. And he was aware of it. And, you know, he, he kind of hoped that it would just go away. <laughs> right? Sweep it under the rug. <clears throat> so, you know what? I'm going to tell you something. And, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to switch topics here a little bit, if that's okay. Yeah, let's do it. Let's but do you know who I think the most honest character? There are lots of potentially honest characters in season two. Um, but in terms of being integrated, like, for example, it's often said that every person is three people. The person other people think they are, the person they think they are, and the person they really are. And probably the most honest character in season two was, and it's not a very known character, very small role, is Jimmy in and out You remember? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he, yeah, he's participating in a lie. He's pretending to be, you know, Heisenberg. So, so the DEA thinks they caught Heisenberg. But even when he's participating in a lie, he's like going through the motions in a way that almost only an honest man could do at that point, you know, given all the stuff he needs to do. I'm not saying he's a good guy. I said that he was the most honest. I didn't call him honest. But he seemed to understand his role pretty well, and he actually got down into the prone position before the cops were even, you know, within. <laughs> yeah, and Hank didn't buy that at all. He 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 was like, "What? Yeah, <laughs> what, what just happened? Yeah, and and so uh, it's really good. He, you know, uh, what does they say? What did?" Uh... He likes it better on the inside. Yeah, he said he likes it better. Yeah, it's what. Well, that's what. Um, that's what Saul Goodman says. He likes it better on the inside. The outside (laughs) world has not been too kind to him. You know. So he just goes with it. He's like, "Well, I might as well leverage this and, uh, you know, make something out of it, right?" And And so then he gets paid the money, and then of course, what what happens to the money? It probably goes into commissary, and so then he uses that as a way to survive inside and, and be left alone right pretty By much. being able to buy cigarettes and trade for it and who knows whatever else and then i kind of portray him as a scapegoat um and maybe not in the way that we that most people think but in a in a way that you know our the, the way that we choose to be as a society and anytime lots of people get together you know the the, the structure of how we copy each other and then compete against each other for differentiation. Um, and, you know, there's a word for that. It's called mimetic rivalry. It requires 
um, us to be able to erect some kind of a scapegoat and dump all of our emotional and physical garbage on that place and blame that person or thing or event for all of our problems and then collectively come up with some kind of a solution and then now we can move on to a new era where we, we don't you know we don't do that anymore and we get along and there's been a lot of those right pearl harbor is a good one um the civil war right 1776 9-11 and then those, those are those are a grand scale for our society um you know well we used to pollute the earth but now you know we passed a law and so we have the environmental protection agency and so now everything's great it's there's there's those those sorts of things everywhere those cathartic events where we have to have a scapegoat to achieve that catharsis and i just really i looked at him as like a microcosm of that larger phenomenon it's kind of interesting and he he just says well if you're gonna make me the scapegoat i'm gonna go with it well you know i think that's definitely one of the angles i also think that he represents a lot of the people that try to functionally adapt to a dysfunctional system you know what i mean like yeah. basically if you live in the world today you know, if you live in the world today and you want to survive, it is almost impossible to be disconnected from the system. And so your next best option is how do I functionally adapt to it? And Jimmy in and out does it. And this whole distinction between the world outside versus the world inside, it almost implies that the world inside is more just than the one outside. Like, you well, know, it probably has much clearer rules. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not saying prison life is good. That's not my point. You know, I, I've been telling people for more than a year that Alex Jones was manipulating them and the FEMA camp was always the city. And people will, oh, I don't understand. And, and then you say what you said, like, look what happened to Port Angeles, dude. You know, the, the small town front, you know, the, the main street being destroyed, but you got the Walmarts and the Home Depots. Well, that kind of fits into the, yeah, the city and the town were always going to be the FEMA camp. You know, they were always going to be the end state, the final state of how things were going to go. And yeah, people just have to adapt to it. They live with it. They, they convince themselves it's normal. It's all okay. Um, at least with Jimmy in and out he keeps it pretty, pretty fucking simple, dude. He yes. knows he knows that the outside world is a prison at this point, and he knows that the prison's a prison, and he's just choosing one prison versus another. Yeah, and, and you know those those people who have trouble adapting to to the quote unquote reality that's foisted on us. Um, those are the ones. Those are the people that become homeless. Mm. Oftentimes, you know, and it. <coughs> excuse me. And as we drove through Port Angeles, you know, my wife said, wow, there's homeless here. And, and there's two things that are weird about my experience driving through Port Angeles. One, how is the city, that little city big enough to support a Walmart, a, a, a huge Walmart, and also big box, you know, home improvement stores? That's, that's weird, isn't it? And two, I mean, small town America... 
didn't used to have homeless problems. No. Because th- those people were able to find a place for themselves. I mean, I would say during the Great Depression, you had a migration of people, and so there were small towns. They would form defense leagues, and they would just keep people out. But at the end of the day, you're right. At least post-World War II, small town, you know, Mayberry America, you know, the, the Andy Griffith show. That, that's the show, right? The Andy Griffith show. They didn't have that problem, really. They might have the town drunk. And I guess you could call him homeless, but he was funny, right? And he was a funny drunk. He wasn't a scary drunk. He was a funny drunk, right? Or, or I'm not saying human problems didn't exist, but I'm just saying that there was a more humane and small-scale way to, to mediate those problems and to deal with them and for people to find a way to negotiate and subsist and survive. Yeah, uh, and I would say that the state, um, over time its only path to stay alive is to figure out ways to victimize some people while keeping other people in the dark. And the problem with homelessness is it's a good example of where that starts to break down. Because ideally, they would just be shipped someplace. Like you take the homeless and you put them on a train and you'd ship them someplace. But that's not even possible at this point. Like I don't even know if the railway system in this country is reliable enough to make that work. So... Ultimately, there's a point at which that breaks down, like their ability to keep one side of society hidden or, or oblivious to the other side, you know, yeah. that, and, that's, yeah. and that's how lies work. Eventually, and the Lord will tell you this in many places, eventually lies break down. The truth is told. It's, it's eventual. You know, it, it cannot be stopped. You know, in, in the sort of um, ultimate statism that in environment that we live in, everything has to be owned, right? So we have to monopolize every last piece of property. And that does not leave a place for marginal people to eke out a homestead-type living where they can build themselves a ramshackle uh, uh, shelter and maybe start a garden and acquire some chickens and then, you know, start trading their the the fruits of their excess for some other thing and then build a better shelter and and there's just no room for that because everything is owned whether it's occupied or not and that's just really sad actually and that's how marginal people used to survive and get themselves established and, and negotiate the the cracks in between society but there's just not no place for that anymore in fact it's just even worse and worse because all of our inflationary pressure has been dumped into, you know, debt-based assets like house, housing, and stock market. It's, it's just too bad. It is. Um, I want if, to, if you don't have another subject, I'd like to just pick the last topic. If you don't, if you, yeah. And, and this deals with the, more or less the end of season two when Jesse's girlfriend Jane, who you know had gotten over her addiction, but then she got addicted again, and they both got into a drug situation with each other, at the yeah. end of season, and, and this also coincides with the whole what you were saying about how Walt's empire is born on the same day of his daughter, but Walt's empire is also kind of born in part when Jane dies. Yeah, 
you know? Yeah, she introduces him to, uh, what, is the speedball or whatever? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, unfortunately. And, you know, he gets her back into meth, and she says, hey, if you're going to do this, let's do it. <laughs> do it the right way, right? Right. <laughs> you know? And, and that's one thing I would say, though, about the situation, is that Jane is not, like, some pristine character. She has her own darkness that she's dealing with. She just has the bad luck to basically end up connected to a person who, even if he himself was not bad, he was connected to somebody who was kind of dangerous and bad, and that's Walt, you know? But we deal with the fact that Jane's dying and Walt's there. Walt's got to pick up the, you know, he's basically, I think, he's picking up, he's not picking up the drugs. He's going to, he's you know, dropping off the money or something or coming by to see because he'd already delivered the drugs and he had the money and he's just there so so basically he's just there observing Jane dying she's choking she's aspirating she's gonna die and he doesn't do any and he doesn't do anything why did he go back I don't remember well he had it, given them the money already he, he he went back you know he didn't give them he was gonna give them the money but he, he you're right he went back again um, and that's a good question. I, I forget the exact I reason. Right. But but the point is, he's there, she's dying, and he doesn't do anything. And the right. question you pose, and this is a good way to end this, I think, is what is the obligation of uh, Walter in that situation? What would what would anybody's obligation be? I mean, let's say for example, um, you happen upon somebody in an alley in a city, and it looks like they're dying but you don't know for sure and they're a homeless person and maybe they're just sick or maybe they're just on drugs you know do you just stop and ask how they're doing or do you keep walking yeah that's that's really 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 hard we you know the the as a christian you know not that i in, in any position or situation to completely look this out myself I'm just not I'll admit it um, but the, the sort of kingdom example that Jesus paints for us is that yes you will stop and you will help that person right That that's the ideal he paints and he doesn't condemn the people who, stop, who don't stop but he does say these people um, are not uh, they're, they're hypocrites because they're they're proclaiming something that they don't live to. Um, but in our current circumstance, it's very difficult because so many of our resources are consumed by the, you know, monopoly state. Um, it's very difficult for us to, to do that because we've already given that job over to somebody else. So how, you know, it puts us in a dilemma. But I think Jesus would say, no, we really need to stop and help that person. Well, and that gets to it, too, is that, you know, a lot of people in their delusional state will say, I pay my taxes, I vote, I support the military, so I don't need to do anything. Somebody will take care of it, you know? And and I think in Walter's case, it's probably not as much that as it's just, you know, it gets to that question of what, what are his ethics at that point? Is it really about people dying or is it about people dying in strategic ways? Like for him, Jane's death had had benefits. It had benefits. Right. It, it it allowed him to keep control of Jesse. It allowed him to do other things. And and you know, it also removed a witness. Okay, 
a witness to yep. who he is, a witness to his whole deal. It removes yep. somebody that threatened to out his lies. Yeah, an unpredictable uh, variable in his little scheme. Um, and, you know, who, who he obviously had no control and was probably just a little more aggressive and street savvy than Jesse was. Oh, yeah. And so yeah. for him, it's like, okay... It's it's not about the killing, you know. It's not about murder or death for him. It's about whether or not that death serves a purpose. And her death for him served a purpose. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, it's it's one of those things where um, it's if a writer, and this is more about creative work than ethics at this point. But if a writer an author is good at telling a story, they can get you to the point where you understand the villain. And the great thing about the folks that worked on Breaking Bad is they, they really did describe the descent of quote-unquote normal Walt into becoming a kind of master villain. He, he really did. Yeah. It was one step at a time. And so when you get to Jane's death, you know, in some ways, as much as, as his empire, like I said, was born when his daughter was born, it's almost like that period on the end of that sentence happens when he watches Jane die because he's fully committed. You know, he at that point, it doesn't really matter. You see, that's a, that's the a thing that I think is interesting because it's like, well, what if, okay, and this is a good topic, so I, I'm okay if we spend some time on it, but what if somebody said, Mike, I want to pass a law in Washington State called the New Improved Good Samaritan Law. And this law requires that people do something if they see something happening. And if they don't, and you find out, then you get in trouble because you walked by and somebody was starving or you walked by and there was somebody dealing drugs at the school and you didn't do anything. Now, what would be your response to the new and improved Good Samaritan law? <laughs> it's not going to work. It's going to have really bad afterward effects because now you're going to have people forcing people to take their solution. Yeah. So <laughs> I want you to fighting over whether or not you're going to accept my care of you. That's right. That's right. So put on your imagination time helmet and go back to, let's say, you know, let's say March and April of 2020, when some of the worst of the COVID hysteria was going on. And think about all the people at the Walmart or at the at the Costco who would walk around the police, the the the, the coffee filter police. They would tell you if your coffee filter was on or not. They would tell you if it was on right. I had one dude correct my coffee filter. The point is, they believe they're doing the right thing, you know, and, and they're obeying whatever the law is. At that point, I don't think they were doing much rather than obeying a PSYOP, but they thought the law said they should do this, so they did it. They, they, were, yeah. they were following the new and improved Good Samaritan law, which is that if the government tells you something's wrong and you see it, you need to do something about it, period. Don't think about it. Don't speculate. You know, It's like those weird posters that started appearing after 9-11. See something, say something. Okay, don't think. Don't introduce the, the concept of thought or logic into that structure. Just simply respond. Yeah. And, you know, another thing, too, you could argue that one of the features of lying, and this kind of goes back to season one, and I think Crazy Eight, you know, when he's wandering the streets 
you know, you mentioned the mimetic aspect of it, how he's a zombie, you know, he's poisoned from phosgene gas and Walt happens upon him. You know, one of the outcomes in a lot of ways of all of this deception is to produce a kind of zombie psychological state, you know, completely unreal, completely inauthentic. And the reason is quite simple, because that's one response to being lied to is simply just to, to have no real thought or understanding. You see something, you say something. You don't need to think about it because you're a zombie. Yeah. Somebody else is going to do the thinking. Somebody else is going to do the policing. Somebody else is going to absorb the consequences. All Dude, that. You, you know when I understood the zombie apocalypse with its absolute uh, truth, what it was? It, I'll tell you when. It was riding the bus to Redmond one morning to Microsoft and seeing all these people staring at their phones. And I understood right then and there that they'd offloaded so much of their thought and imagination and understanding that in a lot of ways they were just zombies at that point because if the phone told them to do something, they were going to go do it. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I agree, Dan. Hey, um, is this a good place to, to put a put a, yep. a, a button on it yep. so I, I gotta get moving okay well um, Mike I appreciate you talking to me today and we will do season 3 uh, maybe in a week or two um, maybe next yeah. weekend if you're available and yep. other um, than that you know thank you for your time dude thank you Dan I appreciate it it's been, it's been great okay have a great week yep and you have a great week and a great rest of your Sunday okay alright thanks Dan bye